Please turn in your Bibles to Acts 27, verses 1 through 44. We will endeavor this morning to read and consider the entire 27th chapter as it is is a story that hangs together. Uh, Acts 27, verses 1 through 44. About uh, two months shy of my 16th birthday, I was uh, lying in the family living room in a hospital bed in a body cast that extended from uh, my chest, top of my chest to uh, my, down my right leg to my toes and to my knee on the left leg. At that, uh, at that time, a, the Silmar earthquake hit Southern California registering 6.6 on the Richter scale. Uh, Dishes began to crash. The house was violently shook. My mother came hurrying down the hall, calling out my name to see if I was uh, still safe. We were hit by aftershock after aftershock. And in a body cast, I felt helpless before this amoral, heartless, impersonal, natural force. Well, God promised to the Apostle Paul that he would preach the gospel in Rome, which he planned to do after he visited Macedonia, Greece, and Jerusalem. That was the plan. However, in Jerusalem, he ran into trouble. He was arrested. Three riots broke out in uh, connection with his preaching. Uh, The authorities then took him to Caesarea, where he languished in jail for two years. Uh, He preached then to Festus and to Felix and to Agrippa, um, the, the... Uh, Roman and and, uh, local authorities, Uh, and then they proposed that he should go to Jerusalem uh, to stand trial. And so he appealed to Caesar, which meant that at last, not by by the means that he had anticipated, he will be taken to Rome in order to stand trial. Uh, So one one of the curiosities of of the book of Acts is why is so much space being devoted? Yeah, we've got 44 verses being devoted to this voyage, and then there's another 16 verses uh, to the further journey uh, to Rome. And one would, one would think that given the trouble that the Apostle Paul has been through already uh, with uh, human, through human agents, uh, that he would enjoy smooth sailing, as, as it were, uh, on, on this journey to Rome. Uh, he'd been through enough already, and so God would intervene to having survived the rage of man, and he is God's apostle on God's journey, that, that, uh, that he, will, he, will be, he will enjoy a, a, a calm and safe trip. After all, Psalm 89.9, God rules the raging seas. And you may remember the words after Jesus calmed the storm in the King James Version, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Uh, so, so given those considerations, can we anticipate that, that uh, there will be smooth sailing? And the answer to the question is no, he won't. It's going to be rough. It's, it's going to reach the point of desperation. Disaster is lurking throughout this journey. He will not be spared the storm. He will not be empowered to subdue the storm by some miracle. He will arrive, but it will be a harrowing journey. 
So again, the question, why is so much space given to this journey? I think the answer is because he and we are not going to be spared these sorts of troubles and trials in this world. Uh, we are not guaranteed ever uh, that, that we will not crash or shipwreck or get sick or become crippled or be rejected or martyred. The one thing that we are guaranteed in the words of the eighth chapter of the book of Romans is that nothing will be allowed to separate us from the love of God which is ours in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, we are exempt from none of the hardships, the trials and tribulations and the sorrows and the sufferings of life. And that point is made emphatic by this journey of the Apostle Paul. Uh, so let's look at the storm, beginning in chapter 27, verse 1. Uh, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, uh, that is, if you think in terms of this journey, if you can think of the Mediterranean and the far right side of the Mediterranean, the Apostle Paul is going to go up the coast of uh, the Middle East, bare left at Asia Minor, and then hopefully they're going to go straight to the west, to the Greek mainland, and then from Greece to Italy. If you keep that in mind, uh, most of that is not going to happen. But that was, that was the plan. That's, that's what they were anticipating doing as they were going to sail for Italy, and so they delivered Paul, continuing verse 1, and some other passengers to, the, to a centurion of the Augustan, named for Caesar Augustus, cohort, no, lot, no doubt some elite formation, named Julius. All of the, um, uh, all of the centurions in, in, in the New Testament are good guys, and Julius is no uh, exception. And embarking on a ship of Adramithium, ad, 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 ad which is a city on the northwest coast of Asia Minor, a ship from that city, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, that is a fellow believer, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Uh, the next day, verse 3, we put in at Sidon, so they sailed 70 miles directly north, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for, and that was without an ankle bracelet. <laughs> uh, he trusted Paul, treated Paul well. Verse 4, and putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. Uh, this is uh, navigational terminology. The lee is where the land is shielding uh, ships from uh, strong winds. So they, they travel now uh, north past Cyprus uh, because the winds were against us. That's an, an ominous warning of what is to come. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia, which is, in other words, they sailed west along the south coast of Asia Minor, about 500 miles now they have traveled, uh, where the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. They, they board a, a grain uh, ship from Alexandria. Egypt was the breadbasket of Italy, and so this is a grain ship that's taking uh, some of the grain to, uh, on to Rome. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of uh, Nidus, that's about 150 miles to the west, as the wind did not allow us to go 
further toward, uh, that is, toward Greece, we sailed south under the lee of Crete off Salome, blown about, in other words, blown about 150 miles um, off course. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, another 50 miles to the west, uh, near which was the city of Lassia in Crete. Uh, since much time had passed, in other words, because of the weather, they didn't sail any further after the passage of some time, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Uh, so the fast is a, is a reference to Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, uh, so we're now into the month of October. All shipping on the Mediterranean ceased from mid-November until mid-March. So we're getting into the bad weather. And so Paul speaks up. He advised them, saying in verse 10, Sirs, I perceive, perceived on the basis of what? Apparently not a prophetic insight, but on the basis of his uh, many uh, miles of travel. We estimate maybe 3,000 miles the Apostle Paul had traveled in his missionary journeys. So I perceive as an experienced traveler that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo but, uh, but, and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul had said. He listens to the pilot, not the preacher. Always a very dangerous thing to do. <laughs> Verse 12, and because the harbor was not suitable... That, that is, it, it was not as comfortable and commodious of what, as what they wanted. To spend the winter in the majority decided rather recklessly to put out to sea from there on the chance. And they knew they were rolling the dice, as it were, that somehow they could reach Phoenix, which is just another 60 miles to the northwest, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So... Uh, the, 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 what, what, uh, what is the result? Well, we continue uh, the story in verse 13. And when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they're off to a good start. They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore to avoid the winds. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from land and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, could no longer sail into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Normally the extra, the lifeboat, as, as it were, would be dragged uh, along uh, behind the, the main ship. But in a violent storm, the danger is that that small ship will be tossed into the main ship, damage it, and even sink it. And so they secure uh, the ship's boat, its, uh, its lifeboat. After hoisting it up, they used supports, that is, cables, to tie around the hull of the ship in order to strengthen it uh, to undergird the ship, continuing in verse 17. Then fearing that they would run aground on the, 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 the Sirtis, so now, now we're uh, 250 miles off course to the southeast, just off the coast of Libya. Uh, and there's, uh, there are uh, uh, sandbars and shoals in this area. And so they're fearing they're going to run aground, uh, continuing in verse 17, and thus they were driven along. Uh, 
Uh, they lowered the, the gear, that is, the drift anchor or sail, in order to slow their process toward the sandbar. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Sign of desperation. The valuable cargo is being pitched overboard. Verse 19, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard, likely a reference to the mast or the crossbeam of the mast. Uh, with their own hands. Again, this is a measure of the desperation. This wasn't washed overboard. No, they took these heavy pieces of equipment and they, with their own hands, pitched them overboard. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest, uh, Luke loves to use understatement. In other words, it was a ferocious storm uh, that lay on us. In other words, they are lost at sea. They don't have any means of navigation because of the cloud cover. So they don't know where they are. They are lost at sea. And they have become absolutely desperate. We lost all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Will the Apostle Paul reach Rome? Well, it appears that he won't. Uh, they're in the, they're in the, in the grip of a merciless storm and they're being guided by a skilled but very foolish crew who have set out to sea in the, at the wrong time uh, of year. So the Apostle Paul, who has survived the riots in, in Jerusalem and who has survived two years of, of imprisonment, now, and, and the plots of his enemies, finds himself in this ferocious, life-threatening, merciless storm. Why? I think it's something of a parable. It's a, it's a living parable. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's an indication. I think the reason for this is being recorded at the, to the length that it is, is that we are to understand that in life and in the service of God and in the proclamation of the gospel and in living the Christian life, we are going to encounter storms. In fact, we may encounter storm after storm after storm, as has been the case with the Apostle Paul. We're going to struggle against the winds and the waves of this world. I've just uh, finished reading the second volume of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot's uh, biography. And her, uh, she, she was uh, one, one of the great authors of the late 20th century and had a regular radio broadcast that was appreciated by, by many, many uh, people. Um, but it was a life full of tragedy. Um, and she went down into Central America in order to translate uh, the scriptures into uh, language that had never been written. So she had to learn the language, and she found a translator uh, who um, uh, knew English and, and knew the language to which, which, she used, which she wished to reduce to writing. And, and then one day, the, the translator, in whose brains was the only knowledge of the two languages, was murdered. And so she lost the benefit of that. Uh, she married Jim Elliott after a few years of marriage and the, the birth of their daughter, then 10 years old. Her husband is murdered by, by the, the Aka Indians, uh, the Wudani as they're now called. She and her 10-month-old stayed in Central America to finish up the translation work. She got all that work done, months and months of 
tedious work, packaged it all up, put it into a suitcase, shipped it to the, her replacement from Wycliffe Bible translators who were going, going to take the, the work to the next uh, stage. And that entire suitcase full of translation work was lost. Lost forever, never recovered. All that labor just, as it were, just washed down the drain to no avail. What was the purpose of God in that? You can understand that she would be asking that question. Why this trouble? Why the murder of my translator? Why the, the, the murder of my, my, my husband by, by this native tribe? Why the loss of all the work that I put into translating the Bible? Some 13 years later, she marries Addison Leach. They're married for just four years, the, the last part of that uh, time together. He died a terrible death, succumbing to cancer. Month after month of agony, pain, and suffering, a torturous death. All that in her first 47 years of life. Storm after storm, and her one of, one of the great uh, reflections that I take from her life, she said, in the midst of, the, of, of Addison Leach's death, by the way, a Gordon Conwell seminary professor, she said, thy will be done though I be undone. We encounter storms. Listen, heaven is the destination and we will arrive. Paul will get to Rome because God has promised that he will. But there will be storms along the way. Our path will be a storm-ridden path. Secondly, we are to hope in God. Number one, we will encounter storms. Number two, we are to hope in God. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul, notice he's taking charge just like he did in his uh, message to Festus and Agrippa. He becomes, he becomes the center of things. He, he, he's a he, he is, as it were, he takes over. He stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I think this is more than I told you so. I think he's saying, Listen, you should have listened to me the first time. Now, listen to me this time. I know what I'm talking about. So, verse 22 Yet I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. In other words, the God, now he is encouraging them to put their trust in. The God who has spoken to me has guaranteed this. Now put your trust in him. And he said, God said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand. You must that's a little, little Greek word that indicates divine necessity. It is of divine guarantee, Paul, that you will stand before Caesar. You will arrive in Rome. And behold, God is granted. That word implies that Paul had been praying for a safe arrival for himself and for everyone else on the ship with him. He has a broad concern and compassion. God has granted you all those who sail with you. Verse 25, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. How does the Apostle Paul know that he will arrive safely? After all, they're in the middle of this tremendous storm. 
and the ship has been stripped of its equipment, and shipwreck is imminent, and everyone else is despairing. How does he know that they will arrive safely? He knows because God has promised and because God is great and God is good and God is the master of the storms and the wind and the waves of this world. It will not be before they are driven across the Adriatic Sea, in other words, into the open water of the central Mediterranean and languish there for 11 days, having traveled a minimum of 600 miles between Crete and Malta, so it won't be before that, but the promise is, Paul, you will arrive. And so he's able to say to those who are with him, yes, we will arrive. How do we know? Because of the promises of God. As he said to Isaiah, Isaiah 43, verse 1, Fear not, Paul, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by name, and you are mine. So when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And it's not saying you won't pass through the waters. No, you will pass through waters and rivers. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. Gee, the way that he characterizes life is a, it's precisely the kind of life that the Apostle Paul is living, and Christians have been living all through the ages. There are waters to pass through and rivers that threaten to overwhelm. There is fire and flame by which we might be burned or consumed, but the promise is they will not. Isaiah 43, 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, and, and I, I will rescue you. Now, it's going to be according to God's timing, not Paul's. Like I say, they're still going to be blown out into the center of the Mediterranean, and they will languish in this storm, being battered by it day after desperate day after desperate day. So it's not going to be right now, not going to be immediately. You're going to have to continue to suffer. You're going to continue to struggle. You're going to, deal to continue to deal with the storm. But according to God's timing, the relief will come. You will be saved. You will be rescued. And on that, you can rest your hope. You can know that with certainty. It's absolutely guaranteed by the promises of God who is faithful and true and who is great and powerful, and the master of the elements. Okay, number three, we learn about providence and the use of means. God is going to save them, but it's going to be through means, and they're not miraculous, but ordinary means. God has his promises, but, but there are those things which we must perform, we must trust as well as obey. So verse 27, and when the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, and really we would call it the central Mediterranean, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found, uh, found 20 fathoms, about 120 feet of depth, a little further. And they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, 90 feet of depth. In other words, they're getting closer to the shore. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern 
And it's clearly it's nighttime, and so they are desperate. They prayed for day to come, lest at night they be driven into the rocks and the ship be lost and all be lost with it. And notice the need of the skill of the mariners. And as, verse 30, as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, wait a minute. Back in verse 24, the Apostle Paul had promised they will be saved. So here's one of the ironies of the providence of God. They will be saved, but not apart from means, and among the means is the skill of the mariners. Without the skill of the mariners, they will not be saved. And so the Apostle Paul stops what they are attempting to do. Matthew Henry said of this passage, God who appointed the end that they should be saved appointed the means that they should be saved by the help of these seamen. And so, verse 32, the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. I believe that's an overreaction. They're going to need that boat to bring people to shore. But no, if Paul says they, we cannot be saved, we're getting rid of this boat so that nobody tries to do this again. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. Notice again, Paul is in charge, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. Here's, here's irony number two about the providence of God. Absolutely guaranteed what's going to happen. And yet, you're going to need your strength. You're going to need calories. You're, you're, you're going to need some food if you're going to be able to struggle against the elements, which we are going to have to do. So eat, please. But he reinforces the promise, continuing in verse 34. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So again, this is another irony. Call it irony number three in the providence of God. If they are going to be light enough to sail over the reefs, that are threatening them, they need to lighten the load so that the ship will not sink down into the rocks. Verse 39, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off anchors and left them into the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Again, the skill of the mariners, necessary. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Is all lost? No. But the soldiers, verse 42, plan was to kill the prisoners, lest they be executed themselves for failing to bring them to their destination, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, here's irony number four, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. And then he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard. Here's irony number four. If you're going to be saved, no, no we, we got we to stop the soldiers from killing. If everyone's to be saved, like God promised, we've got to stop the soldiers from killing the passengers, or the prisoners at least, and then you're going to have to 
you're going to have to jump into the water, into this winter water, and those who can swim are going to need to swim, and the rest of you are need to, going to grab some loading, uh, floating piece of debris and float to shore. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship, and so it was that all were brought to safety. Now, some 1,700 miles they have traveled from Judea to Malta. And notice, God didn't part the sea for Paul and the passengers and the crew to walk to dry land. He didn't appoint angels to carry them from the ship to the shore. For them to be saved, they must plunge into the water and wade to shore. And the point is, and the reason why Luke used so much space in telling us this story, is that it is something of an enacted parable. The church as a whole and each believer is required to pray to God and rose to shore. Right? When we have the promises of God, that doesn't invite passivity. And it certainly doesn't invite fatalism on our part. Well, if God's going to do it, he's going to do it. And therefore, I can sit back and do nothing. Not at all. Because he's made the promise, we swim to shore. Because he's made the promise, we grab hold of some floating box and, and, and we float to shore. We need, we, need, we, need, we need to take the steps that are necessary for our preservation if the promise of God is to be fulfilled. And this is a lesson that we all need to learn about the relationship between the promises of God, the, pro the providence of God, and our use of means when storms come in life. How are we to respond? Well, there's some ways that modern people respond to stress or trouble in their lives, aren't there? Uh, some binge watch TV. Uh, this is what we do. We're, 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 we're distressed, we're downed. We're facing the wind and the waves, and so what do we do? We binge watch TV. Or perhaps an, another tactic that we use is we eat. We just start uh, eating recklessly, eating everything in sight, feeding our faces, and we, we call it comfort food, don't we? Uh, these are the kinds of things we do. We, we try to distract ourselves so that we don't think about the wind, we don't think about the waves, we don't think about the storm. Uh, and and it, uh, for a, a period of time, it, it, it goes away. Uh, but it doesn't really go away, does it? It's still there. We're still going to have to deal with it. Now, how, how are we to deal with these storms of, of life? Well, we are to pray, but we are also to use the means that God gives at our disposal to renew our faith and renew our hope and deal with the trouble and deal with the trial and deal with the temptation, deal with the the pain and, and the sorrow and, and the suffering, to deal with the, the inevitable storms that we are going to face in life. That's the point of the Apostles' journey. The church is going to face storms. Individually, we are going to face storms. We are not exempt. We are not promised a carefree life. Uh, indeed, the opposite. Jesus says to his disciples in the world, you will face tribulation. Now, do not fear because I've overcome the world, but in the world, there will be tribulation. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have trials. You're not going to be able to avoid it. I am not going to exempt you from that. So what are we to do? We're to pray to God and row to shore. 
We're to trust God. We're to pray, but not passively or fatalistically. We're to pray, but actively using the ordinary means that God gives to us. You know what among the things that means is, now we not only pray, but we come to church. We read our Bibles. We bring ourselves to the public services under the ministry of the Word, where Jesus is present, where He is there to comfort us by His Spirit. He sent the Comforter for that very purpose. And He speaks to us through His Word, and He strengthens us so that we're, we become the kind of people who are able to face these trials, uh, these storms that are inevitable in, in life. And in the process, we're able to give witness, bear witness to the world of the peace of God that we enjoy e- even as we struggle against the storm. We have, we have in Christ a peace that passes understanding. That's the language of the Apostle Paul. That's, that's Philippians 4, 7. We have a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. That's the language of, of, of 1 Peter chapter 1. Joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. There's that foundation of peace and joy that can, that can never be shaken. And so the Apostle Paul is a calm and governing presence in the midst of the storm amongst a shipload of unbelieving people and a handful of believers. And that's us in the world. That's the way that we're to be. And therefore be able to be strong witnesses again, uh, in, in, in the presence of our neighbors and our friends and the people that we go to school with and the people that we work with. There's a difference, a different character to Christian lives. There is that, 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 that foundational peace and joy and contentedness that we have like the apostle in the midst of the storms as the wind and the waves are are, are, are crashing against us. And, and as a church, the same thing. We're going to sail through storms. The tempests will blow mightily. But here's what we know. We know that, 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 the, that God has promised that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Paul, long list in Romans 8, all the trouble of life, nothing. And, and for us collectively, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. All of the mighty winds and waves and storms of the devil and hell itself and all his dominions shall not prevail. They will not sink the good ship of faith. They will not sink the church. They will not prevail, but we will stay afloat and we will complete our journey through the storm into the presence of God, whose presence is the fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore, as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, We rejoice in your promises, O Lord, the promises of your protection, the promises of your provision. You are a refuge and strength and a very present help in in all of the tribulations of life in this world. And O Lord, we pray that like the apostle, we might stand tall 
that we might be strong and courageous like Joshua, that we would be bold like Peter, and that we would stand firm, confident that nothing in time or in eternity shall separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.